Well, it's been a very good day so far, amazing day actually, but there was two incidents that I kind of needed to talk to you about, two incidents of church discipline that occurred today, and we are a very transparent church, so I thought I'd pass them on to you. In the first service, there was a woman in the third row who chose to wear a Calgary Flames hat to church. So the ushers escorted her out. She's been suspended for four weeks, okay? In the second service, another woman came in the fourth row and was wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. The ushers, the ushers escorted her out. Also, she's been suspended indefinitely. We actually don't know if we're ever going to let her back. <laughs> uh, as a church, we've been leaning into this Old Testament life story about a guy named Samuel. And I want to tell you, I, lose, I use that phrase, leaned in, intentionally, because it's a phrase that describes a posture. And we're talking a lot more about this in the new year, but I want to submit to you that our posture is extremely important. That when we open the Bible, when we go to our small group, when we attend church, that our posture really largely determines God's power. You say, whoa, wait a minute, Mike. God's power is limitless. His love is extravagant. Absolutely, I, I agree. But if you read carefully through the Bible, you will see that the degree to which God's power plays out in the lives of people is largely determined by their posture. That when we come into church, when we come, uh, come to reading the Bible with, with a posture of humility, a, a posture of excitement, expectancy, and faith, God's power plays out in such a real way. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said. He, he said, I'm going to boast in my weakness. In other words, God, I need you today. I need you to give me one next step. I need you to encourage and inspire me today, God. I'm going to boast in my weakness because when I am weak, then I am strong. So I want to encourage us today to just come at this message with a, with a posture of expectancy. In fact, God, we've been seeing God do amazing things. If you've missed any of the sermons over about the last five weeks, can I really, really urge you to go on southsidelife.com or the podcast and catch up? So we've been talking about Samuel, and scholars will tell you that Samuel is known as the last judge and the first prophet in the nation of Israel. Okay, so up until the time of Samuel, uh, the Israelites were led, the nation of Israel was led by a judge. In the tradition of Moses and Joshua, the judge was a person who, in whom all the military, political, and spiritually, spiritual authority of the nation rested on this one person, God's representative. But eventually the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, we don't want a judge anymore. We want a king like the other nations have. And at first Samuel resists it, but God says, give the people what they want. And in that moment, Samuel goes from being the last judge to the first prophet. Because God says, I'm going to show you the man who is to be king. And, and God identifies to Samuel a young man named Saul. Big, tall, good-looking guy wealthy family, you know, prestige. And, and, and we talked last week about how Saul's uh, rule started with triumph but ended in tragedy. And the reason was that, that there was a darkness inside of Saul. There was a problem with his posture. His trust and his faith was in himself and his power and his popularity and his wealth. He didn't have that trust in God. And so what started out in triumph ended in tragedy, so much so that before Saul's reign is even over, God sends Samuel to identify the next king of Israel. God sent Samuel to a little town called Bethlehem. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? 
And he, he said specifically to Samuel, I want you to pay attention to the family of a man named Jesse, because one of his sons is going to be the next king. So Jesse brings his sons to Samuel, and he shows Samuel the first son, a kid named Eliab, the oldest. Here's the story. Samuel took one look at Eliab. This is 1 Samuel 16, by the way. And thought, here he is. God's anointed. But God told Samuel, looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed with his looks and stature. I've already eliminated him. God judges persons differently than humans do. Men and women look at the face. God looks into the heart. Jesse then called up Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. Samuel said, this man isn't God's choice either. Next, Jesse pre presented Shammah. Samuel said, no, this man isn't either. Jesse presented his seven sons to Samuel. Samuel was blunt with Jesse. God hasn't chosen any of these. Then he asked Jesse, is this it? Are there no, no more sons? Well, yeah, there's the runt, but he's out tending the sheep. Samuel ordered Jesse, go get him. We're not moving from this spot until he's here. Jesse sent for him. He was brought. He was brought in the very picture of health, bright-eyed and good-looking. God said, up on your feet, anoint him. This is the one. Samuel took his flask of oil and anointed him with his brothers standing around watching. The Spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind, God vitally empowering him for the rest of his life. What a day. You know, over the last several weeks, we've been talking about this road of redemption that God has kind of paved through history. A road of redemption that runs through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through Joseph and Moses and Joshua. But what I would submit to you today is on this day, the day when a 15-year-old punk kid was anointed to be the next king of Israel, that the road of redemption accelerated greatly. I would want to tell you today that out of the genealogy of this 15-year-old boy named David, eternity would be shaken. Be because one of the descendants of David would be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you read through the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, it says this way. It says it this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Near the end of David's life, God said this to him. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's amazing. And 700 years before Jesus himself was born, the prophet Micah would write that the Messiah was going to be born in a little town called Bethlehem, David's hometown. And history was shaken. And eternity was shaped. And it all accelerated on that day when a 15-year-old punk kid was anointed to be the next king of Israel. It comes together in a passage in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We, we refer to this moment being described as the holy night. I got a little video to show it. You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. <laughs> what a treat. 
I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I bring you tidings of great joy that'll be for which people? For all people. Something really profound about that passage out of Luke chapter 2. See, for me, what that passage explains is that redemption isn't just historical, it's also personal. I'll bring you tidings of great joy that'll be for which people? All people. That's good news. It's this passage out of Luke chapter 2, by the way, that served as the first ever radio transmission in human history. Did you know that? On Christmas Eve of 1906, there were ships traveling around the Atlantic Ocean, and they all had radio receivers, but up to that point in history, the radio receiver had only ever been used for dots and dashes, the Morse code. But on Christmas Eve of 1906, these ships traveling around the Atlantic that would have been used to hearing dots and dashes out of their radio receiver suddenly would have heard a violin playing a song called O Holy Night, which we just sang, and then a man reciting Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. Something about that passage. I remember as a little boy sitting crisscross applesauce on the living room floor of my nanny and grandpa's farmhouse in Yarrow. And I was an ADD kid, always hyper, always running around, and I never really paid attention to anything. But every year I would look forward to that moment when Linus would recite Luke chapter 2, and I would be still, and I would listen to every word of it, and I would get goosebumps every year because in that moment I realized that redemption isn't just historical, it's also personal. And I would think to myself, if the passage says all people, that means all people. And when I hear, you know, poor Charlie Brown, You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, and his dog doesn't, you know, his dog is laughing at him. You know, I, I felt dumb at times in my life. I felt stupid at times in my life. I felt like I could never do anything right. But yet the message of the gospel, the message of redemption, the message of Christmas says this. It's historical, but it's also personal. Tidings of great joy for all people. And we talk about this road of redemption that runs through Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua, 
and David. And then Jesus and redemption explodes across human history. It runs to you. It runs through you. It's personal. And I want to really talk about three things that, that I believe we need to keep, uh, keep in mind if this, if this redemption is going to play out completely in our lives. And I'm taking them all from this story. When a 15-year-old forgotten son is anointed to be the next king of Israel. So here's the first thing I want to tell you today for your redemption story. Sometimes a roadblock is actually a toll booth. Sometimes a roadblock is actually a toll booth. Can, can we all agree that it wasn't a real good day for David? Right, like everybody gets invited to the party with Samuel the prophet, but David doesn't. He's out in the field keeping, you know, keeping watch over the flocks. And I thought about it this week. There's really only two possible reasons why Jesse didn't invite David to the party. Here's the first. He forgot he had an eighth son. He just forgot him. Okay, you say, well, that's impossible. Yeah, maybe. Like, I have six kids, and every once in a while, like, I'll forget their birth dates, all right? I'll be filling out a form online, and, and I'll have to text to the Mattis family group chat. Hey, can somebody tell me what Emma's birthday is again? And they get all mad at me, and they say, Dad, you should know. I know, but it's hard to, oh, maybe Jesse just forgot he had an eighth son. More likely, he remembered he had an eighth son. He just didn't think the eighth son was worth inviting to the party. Either way, not great news for David, correct? Now, I mention that to you because sometimes I have a tendency when I read the Bible to just skip past the hard parts and get to the good part. You know, oh, it's a tough day for, da for David, I guess, but 1 Samuel 17, just one chapter forward in the Bible, First Sam you, know, you know what happens in 1 Samuel 17? Well, David's now 17 years old, and he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with a giant named Goliath, and David defeats the giant. At the risk of being overly obvious, can I make a simple observation? That day when David was standing all by himself in the field when everyone else was having a party, he, he didn't have 1 Samuel 17 to read. He didn't even have 1 Samuel 16 or 1 Samuel anything, for that matter. And, and I wonder how the story could have played out differently. Jesse sent a messenger out to David. And the messenger said, David, your dad wants you to come back to the party. And David said, nope. Not coming. If you wanted me at the party, you should have invited me right away. You know how embarrassing this is? Not a chance. Or how about this one? Jesse sent a messenger out to the field to get David, but when he got there, David was gone. But he left a note, and the note said, you've ignored and forgotten me for the last time. I hate you. Peace out, David. But it doesn't play out that way. But I, I just want you to imagine, though, for a second, what David is feeling as he gets called in from the field to join the party late, and everybody at that party would have been showered and looking sharp. And there's David, and he's a stinky shepherd, right? Showered, I just used S-H instead of S. It was, it was super funny in my mind. I thought you were gonna like it. Okay, so, um, but, but there he is. And, and, and how is he feeling? He's feeling forgotten by his dad. His brothers think he's inferior, and he's not worth inviting to the party. I mention that to you because I believe that every bit is true as it would be for me to stand here and say, David had a great story to tell. You have a great story to tell. And I think sometimes in life, adversity can seem insurmountable, but it's not. In other words, sometimes a roadblock can actually be a toll booth. Like, let me put it this way. 
you were created on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose, by a God who does not make mistakes. Now stop. Please, please lean into that. It's, it's fourth service, but I'm fresh. And I need you to be fresh. I need you to hear that. You were created on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose, by a God who does not make mistakes. In other words, listen, God looked at human history. He, he looked at this city. He looked at this church. He looked at your family. He looked at your school. He looked at, your, uh, the, at the place that you work, and he said, this world is in desperate need of hope. This world is in desperate need of joy. This world is in desperate need of courage. This world is in desperate need of love. And he had an idea, and that idea is you. Please lean into that. Jesus put it this way, let your light shine. Please understand. You you understand that's a call to arms, right? Let your light shine into what? Into the darkness. And, and there, therefore, you are extending, you are advancing light into darkness. That's a battle. You will face resistance. And what I want to suggest to you today is when you face adversity in your life, you might be tempted to assume that it is a sign that you're doing something wrong. I want to suggest to you that it may well be a sign that you are doing something right. And we need to get to the point where we understand that sometimes a roadblock can be a toll booth. God wants to tell a great story with your life. That road of redemption, it runs to you and through you. And sometimes the price that we pay to tell the redemption story that God created us to tell is blood, sweat, and tears. Think this week about students, high school students, university students. Tis the season in university, by the way. Exams and papers all come and do. That's tough. It's challenging. Studying and studying and writing and writing and, 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 and exams and exams, and you might be tempted to feel, man, it's a roadblock. It's too hard. It's too difficult. What I want to suggest to you is it's a toll booth. Pay the price. Because our world desperately needs believers who think and thinkers who believe. And if you look at me right now and you go, well, Mike, school's just not, not my thing. Can I, can, can, can I prove it? Prove it to me. Go down swinging if you're going to go down. Single people. Single people that have come to the point where they say, you know what? I think I'm going to trust God's plan for my life. Especially when it pertains to relationships. In other words, I, I want to find someone who loves Jesus. One day get married. And after I get married, have sex. It's a very countercultural concept, you know. And sometimes it's not made a lot better by even people, married people in the church that think that you have some sort of a disease and that disease is called single and they just want to cure it no matter how they, they're, they're going to cure it, you know. So they want to introduce you. Man, you've you got to meet this guy. He's perfect for you. And this guy's a few shingles short of a roof, man. You're like, are you kidding me? You've got to meet this girl. She's, per- she's a few french fries short of a Happy Meal. You're like, really? It, 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 it's like this idea in our culture that says, man, unless you find that certain someone, you're incomplete. 
and it feels like you hit a roadblock. You just need to give up. Because you know all you gotta do is download the app and swipe right. Counterfeit, comfort, boom. And it feels like a roadblock, but you know what it actually is? It's a toll booth. And I know you're paying a price. You're paying the price to tell a beautiful, transformational story. That's what you're doing. How about married people? I said to Corinne when we, the last time we spoke, maybe we gotta start talking a little bit more about our challenges. Because I have lots of young couples come up to me lately and go like, we don't have any conflict in our marriage. What? What do you mean? We don't have any conflict in our marriage. I don't believe you. Like if you tell me you have no conflict in your marriage, I think one of three things is true about you. Number one, you're terrifying. Okay, and who, whoever you're married with, to, with, whoever you're married with, whoever you're married to is just too scared to conflict with you. Number two, you're terrified. So you just keep the peace even though in your heart you know there's things that need to change. Or, or three, you're a liar. It's one of those three things. Because you're an imperfect person married to another imperfect person in an imperfect world. Kurt and I got engaged in September of 1990. We got married in May of 1991. Our engagement was difficult. It was mostly my fault. I remember Christmas. That Christmas of 1990, we went home to Red Deer. There was lots of snow, and we had a big fight. Kurt and we had a big fight. I don't know what it was about. I do know where it was, though. It was in the Petro Pass bulk fuel station in North Red Deer. Say, well, thanks for telling me that, Mike. I know, you just write that down. Take, take notes on this, okay? So I don't, I, I don't know what we fought about, but I just remember it culminated in me doing this. Well, give me the ring then. Give me the engagement ring. And she gave it to me, and I threw it as far as I could, right into the snow. Let's go. So we got in the truck, and I'm going to drive her home, and I'm driving along, and this little voice in my head says, hey, Charlie Brown, you're kidding me, right? So, something along those lines. And I'm like, oh, that, mm, maybe that wasn't my smartest moment. So I looked at Corinne, and I said, man, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. And she said, I'm sorry, too. Turn the truck around. We've got to go find the ring. So we went back, and for hours we dug through the snow, and we found the ring. I mentioned that. It's a funny story, kind of. But I mentioned that because I think for some of us in our marriages, we think that when we face adversity, it's a roadblock. It's a toll booth. It's actually a toll booth. Like, I love what God has built through, in, in Corinne and I, through Corinne and I. And the story is kind of sweeter because I remember December of 1990. Don't give up. We gotta be willing to pay the price to tell that great redemption story that God is writing with our lives. Think about older people today. What do you mean older, Mike? Older than me, <laughs> you know? That's old right there, older than me, let's say. It's interesting because uh, throughout history and throughout the world today, a vast majority of cultures have a great amount of reverence and honor that they give to older people. Did you know that? Be be because they know something that I guess is sort of self-explanatory is that older people have lived more lives. They know more stuff. They have more wisdom normally. And so younger people in most cultures are more than willing to take a time out and listen to an older person. Our culture, however, does not do that. By and large, okay? Our, if, I, if I had to explain and describe the attitude that our culture has towards old people, it, it would probably be best um, illustrated in traffic. I can't believe I'm stuck behind this old dude. Let's go, old man, let's go! 
I'm in a hurry. Gotta go, gotta go, gotta move, gotta move. Faster, 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 faster. And yet, and yet you're an older person and you know, and you have so much to offer. You wanna give your wisdom, you wanna give your love, you wanna give your prayers, and, and, and yet sometimes the world feels like it's moving and no one wants to listen and you're tempted to see it as a roadblock. Can I suggest to you it's a toll booth? Please persevere. Please persevere. Please don't give up. We desperately need your prayers. We desperately need your wisdom. We desperately need you to believe this, that your years of greatest influence are still ahead. But you gotta pay the price. So this personal road of redemption that you and I are traveling, number one, we gotta remember, sometimes a roadblock is actually a toll booth, and number two, sometimes ordinary is actually extraordinary. Sometimes ordinary is actually extraordinary. For Samuel 17. 17-year-old David kills Goliath. How extraordinary. Not really. Now, by the way, I will tell you, 1 Samuel 17 is a passage that I'm going to be preaching on at our Christmas services. You need to be here. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. The music's going to be awesome. The message is going to be good. The decorations are going to be great. But here's here's what I believe is going to happen. God's going to change lives this Christmas. So I know last week I said to you, maybe you should sit one and serve one, or sit one and serve two, or sit one and serve three. I want to modify that a little bit today, and I want to say if there's people in your life that need to be here at Christmas, and and, and they will only come if you you bring them, if you come with them, maybe you're going to have to serve two and sit two. Maybe you're going to have to serve uh, two and sit three. I don't know, but let's get as many people out as we can. But there's 17-year-old David, and he kills this giant named Goliath. We say extraordinary. I say not really ordinary. David was just doing what shepherds ordinarily do, wasn't he? When you signed up to be a shepherd, you signed up to be a warrior. Because when you're out in the field with your sheep, if a, if a, if a, if a lion comes to attack the sheep, you go to battle with that lion to protect the sheep, don't you? When you're out in the field with the sheep and a bear comes in to snatch one of the sheep, you go to battle with that bear to protect the sheep. And when you're 17 years old and a giant comes into your nation to threaten the people, you go to battle with that giant to protect the people. See, sometimes ordinary is actually extraordinary. Because I've, I've heard pastors say before that it was the field that prepared David for the fight. I guess that's true. Or it was the pasture that prepared David for the palace. That makes sense. Where I think those analogies fall flat just a little bit is they're somewhat unrelatable for you and me. In other words, what I mean is, I don't think there's a really high chance, probability, that I'm going to fight a nine-foot giant in my life. I don't want to, actually. And I, and I don't really think I'm ever going to live in a palace. And so we look at David and go, yeah, yeah, his ordinary was extraordinary because 1 Samuel 17. But no one's ever heard of me. I felt like God wanted me to tell you today that God's heard of you. God's heard of you. God thought you up. You're his idea. And and, and he placed you in this position, in this moment, and he's with you, and he's for you, and he wants you to know that your ordinary is actually extraordinary. You just haven't read your 1 Samuel 17 yet. I talked to parents. Corinne said, the days are long, but the 
but the years are short. But that doesn't change the fact that the days are long as a parent. But you know what you've been doing? You've been praying that God would give you patience and kindness. And you're doing way better than you think you are. And sometimes you do ordinary things that are actually really extraordinary. Look, listen to this. You, you dropped your child off at Southside Kids today. And they're going to go in there, and they go, they're going to learn about a story. You want to hear about it? It goes like this. Listen, listen, this is amazing. There, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. Listen, listen to this. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified, obviously. But the angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you uh, tidings of great joy that will be for which people? For all people, young people and old people, little people and big people. Tonight in the town of David, a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. You, you, drop, you dropped your child off to hear that? Oh, that'll shake eternity right there. And sometimes at the end of the day when you feel like you have no more energy left, you suck it up for 15 more minutes and you open that book and you read them a story about how Jesus loves them no matter what. You say, well, no one's ever heard of me. God's heard of you. He thought you up. You're actually his idea. And, and he placed you in this position, in this moment, for his purpose. And he's with you. And he's for you. And he wanted me to tell you, your ordinary is actually extraordinary. You just haven't read your 1 Samuel 17 yet. Southside volunteers. You know it takes hundreds of people to make church happen this week, this, this week, every week here at Sardis. Hundreds of people. Hundreds of people. And it's funny because I thought to myself this week, the amount of times that I've stood up here and I've said things like this. Um, the setup team is the backbone of this church because they're here hours before we arrive making church possible. Is that true? Yes. And I've been up here before and I've said, the takedown team is the heartbeat of this church because hours after we leave, they're there taking church down to get it all ready for next week. Is that true? Yep. The parking team, what a team. So important because the sermon actually starts in the parking lot. It's true. The welcome team, are you kidding me? The welcome team. There are people that walk through their daily lives and no one ever appreciates them and no one ever loves them and the welcome team gets to stand at the door and shake hands and say, can I tell you something? Welcome here. I'm so glad you made it. That's huge. The Southside Kids team can't get more important than that. Southside Youth team, teenagers? That's tough. It's tough years. They're tough to hang out with sometimes too. So important. Tech team, if they didn't tech, what would we do? You know, I remember one time the sound cut out and I had to preach a whole sermon with, like, with no microphone. I just yelled. It's kind of fun, but I don't ever want to do it again. Everything I said was true. But none of it, listen, listen, none of it is the reason why anyone here serves. The reason is, I guess, a lot more profound and a lot deeper than that. They've looked around this world in desperate need of hope. In desperate need of hope. In desperate need of hope. And they said, I can, and I will, and I must do something. And I understand that maybe your role at Southside isn't that visible. You say, well, no one's ever heard of me. Can I tell you something? God's heard of you. He thought you up. He placed you in that position for his purpose. And he's with you, and he's for you. And he wanted me to tell you, your ordinary is actually extraordinary.
you just haven't read your first Samuel 17 yet. We've got a lot of teachers and coaches that come to Southside. Isn't it amazing that Jesus loves every single one of those students, every single one of the people that you coach? But sometimes for you, you actually secretly pray that they would get sick. And, you know, just a certain one, not a debilitating illness, you know, but a certain, that they would just miss class or miss practice for a couple weeks. But there's something that you've been doing, and it's pretty amazing. You've been asking God to give you eyes to see them like he sees them and a heart to love them like he loves them. And this is what's been happening, is God's giving you the ability to look beyond that behavior which drives you crazy and see the brokenness that causes the behavior. And God's given you the ability to look beyond that personality that can grate on your nerves a little bit and see the pain that causes that part of their personality. And you love them. You say, well, no one's ever heard of me and it seems pretty thankless. God's heard of you. God thought you up for such a time as this. He placed you in that position for his purpose. And he's with you and he's for you. And he wanted me to tell you that your ordinary is actually extraordinary. You just haven't read your first Samuel 17 yet. Maybe you're a recovering addict. How did you get addicted in the first place? Like how did you get addicted to that substance or that behavior? It's kind of hard to tell, right? Like maybe, maybe it's just something that runs in your family for generations and generations. Or maybe uh, you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time and next thing you know, you were hooked and you were in bondage and then listen, listen to what you did. You decided that you were gonna fight for freedom. And we talk like, oh, ordinary. No, no, the voices that you struggle with are voices that say you're way less than ordinary. That, that you're a failure and a, a lost cause and a loser. But you haven't given up. You, you prayed for God to give you the strength when you don't have any. He's put a couple people in your life that are helping you and it's not perfect, but you're not going to give up. And I just need you to know God's really proud of you and he really loves you. I just feel that you need to know that there's a generations of people that you have never even met and they're sitting on the edge of their seats and they're cheering you on as you fight for freedom so much, so much, so much is at stake. And in God's strength you're fighting. And I guess I wanted to tell you that your ordinary is actually extraordinary. You just haven't read your first Samuel 17 yet. Three things I wanted you to know today. Number one, sometimes a roadblock is actually a toll booth. Number two, sometimes ordinary is actually extraordinary. And number three, sometimes you, yeah you, sometimes you are actually a way bigger deal than you think. Sometimes you are actually a way bigger deal than you think. The Spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind, God vitally empowering him for the rest of his life. The Spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind, God vitally empowering him for the rest of his life. Amazing. You know, if you're a Christian here today, if you surrendered your life to Jesus last week or Last month or 25 years ago, the same Spirit of God is alive and well and working in you. You? You're actually a way bigger deal than you think. I'll close with a story. 
Back in the 1930s, there was a wealthy man. He was an art collector. I mean, such a successful art collector that many believe that he had the finest private art collection in the world in that day. And the only, the only person that he really had in his life was his young son. They were just a family of two. And as soon as his son grew old enough, he, he would fly around the world with his son, collecting art. He was amazed at the eye that his son had for art as they looked at Van Gogh's and Rembrandt, Rembrandt's and Monet's. He was also amazed at the business sense and the business savvy that this young son had. His father once in a while would say to some of his friends, this boy's gonna be a greater collector than I am. But this little family of two, like so many families in the world in the early 1940s, was interrupted by World War II. And so this son, as soon as he became old enough, volunteered for the war. He went away to fight for his country, to fight for freedom, to fight against tyranny. And it wasn't many months later when his father got the word that his son was missing in action. He feared the worst, you know. And the worst was confirmed. Just weeks later, a messenger came to the door on December the 15th. He said, it's been confirmed, sir, your son was killed in action. Devastating. It was even made worse by the timing, December 15th. Because for this man and his boy, Christmas, Christmas had always been their favorite time of year. They would celebrate together, you know, peace, hope, and joy. There was no celebration this year. There was no peace, and no hope, and no joy. The old man took to his room and he wouldn't come out until the early morning hours of December 25th, Christmas morning. There was a loud knock on the front door. The old man climbed out of his bed and he went to the door and he opened it. There was a young soldier standing there. He said, sir, I am so sorry to disturb you on Christmas Day. But there's two things that I just felt I needed to do today. And here's the first. Your son and I were very, very good friends during the war and I thought you should know your son was a hero. Over and over and over again, I saw him risk his life, put his safety second <clears throat> to save others who were injured or trapped. In fact, to tell you the honest truth, sir, I was the last person that your son ever saved. He dragged me to safety shortly before the explosion that took his life. I just needed you to know that your son was a hero. And secondly, I wanted to tell you, sir, that when your boy and I were talking, he would speak often about how much he loved his dad. And how you loved collecting art together. And I'm a painter myself. And so I painted you this picture of your son. And I'm no Rembrandt or Van Gogh, but I just wanted you to have it. And the, the father assured this young soldier that it indeed was the most priceless gift that he had ever received. As they spent time over the next hour or so speaking, the father even assured the soldier that this picture would now be placed in the place of honor in his sitting room. True to his word, when the soldier left, the father went rearranging tens of millions of dollars of paintings to place this picture front and center. He would sit in his sitting room looking at the picture, and he was still brokenhearted, but somehow he found a little bit of hope, a little bit of joy in knowing that his son was such a hero. Well, the next spring, he took ill suddenly, and 
quite quickly actually died. And the news still soon spread around the world that this art collection, perhaps the finest private art collection in the entire world, was going to be auctioned off. The timing was interesting, however. Even though it was spring, according to the wishes of the father, the auction was not going to take place until December the 25th, the day that he had received his most priceless gift. So eventually, December the 25th came, and art collectors from around the world assembled. And an auctioneer stood in front of the room, and he held up the picture of the man's son. He said, who will give me $100 for this painting? $100, $100, $100. Anyone? Would anyone give me $100? No one would. But the auctioneer was not dissuaded. He continued, would anyone give me $100, $100, $100 for this painting? Would anybody give me $100? Nothing. And the minutes went by, and the auctioneer did not give up. Till eventually, at the back of the room, murmurs began. People started speaking out. What are you doing? No one wants that painting. That's not why we're here. Get on with it. But the auctioneer was not dissuaded. He stood at the front. $100, $100. Would anybody give me $100 for this painting? Until finally, there was a man leaning up against the wall. He wasn't an art collector. He was actually a neighbor. He had been good, fr- good friends with the dad, and he really loved the son also. He put up his hand and he said, I don't have much money, but I could probably find $10. Is there any way you would take $10 for that painting? The auctioneer paused. And then he said, $10, $10. I have a bid for $10. Would anybody give 15 Nothing. $10 going once. $10 going twice. Sold to the man for $10. The murmurs at the back of the room began again. Finally, we can get on with it. Let's go. But the auctioneer was closing his briefcase. He looked out at the audience. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I wish you the warmest of holiday greetings. The auction today is concluded. Concluded? The room was in an uproar. And then he looked up and he said, according to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son gets it all. Pretty interesting this time of year, isn't it? See, you? Actually, a way bigger deal than you think because of the message that you carry. That God sent his son into human history on a rescue mission. And that that son died on a Roman cross and was resurrected again three days later. Whoever takes the son gets it all. Forgiveness of sins. Strength for today, hope for tomorrow, and the promise of eternity. Jesus loves you. And he loves every single person in this city. And part of his redemption plan for some of them is to place you in their proximity. And the message is simple. I got a story that you just gotta hear. I got someone that you just got to meet. So I want to ask you again as we prepare for next week, can you understand the stakes and how high they are? And ask God, who are the people in my life that can invite to hear that message? Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, God's Son, Savior, 
Messiah. Thank you. Thank you that you stepped into human history on a rescue mission, that you died and that you rose again. Thank you for redemption. And our prayer is simple. As we look ahead to Christmas, Jesus, would you please change us? And you've changed us to change this city, to change history, one life, one story at a time. In your name, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. Hey, thanks so much for watching today. Why don't you come join us at any of our four Sunday services? We meet at Sardis Secondary School in Chilliwack, British Columbia. And for more info, you can visit southsidelife.com.